really excited this week to have Ben Parkin from the Financial Times with us uh, to, to help us think through a set of problems that Me Too and I have been thinking about a bunch this semester in connection with our sovereign debt classes. And these are issues that uh, arise in particular in connection with the debt crisis in Sri Lanka, which is starting to get um, to attract more international press, but for a long time seemed not to be the uh, getting the attention that it deserved, except in a few places. And the FT uh, and Ben, along with his colleague Tommy Stubbington and others, uh, were two of the journalists who were getting into the details and the interesting geopolitical rivalries implicated by the debt crisis in Sri Lanka. So we were really excited uh, when Ben agreed to come and join us to help us think through what the what's going on right now in Sri Lanka and maybe to help us get a better sense of what a debt restructuring, uh, assuming we are allowed to say those words, uh, get a better sense of what that might look like. So Ben, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here and I'm excited to speak with both of you. Can you start just by giving us a, a bit of a bit of background about the, the debt crisis? Um, I mean, the kind of the standard global story in a lot of places now has to do with COVID and drops in tourism and drops in remittances and so forth. And I, I think that's probably part of the story, but I'm hoping you can just kind of take us through what's going on now and, and how we got there. Yes. So I, I think that is the, the standard story and it is more complicated than that. So just to go back in time very briefly, um, you know, Sri Lanka, of course, experienced this really long, multi-decade, brutal civil war that ended in 2009, started in the 1980s. And, you know, as that ended around that time, you know, authorities had, were starting to borrow from international debt markets um, for the first time to, to fund a, a recovery. And investors were looking to Sri Lanka as a uh, a good place for you know high yield um, high yielding assets. Um, so this continued in, through the years, and you know Sri Lanka sort of developed a reputation as a reliable borrower that was consistently able to refinance its loans, roll over, and while all the while expanding its debt. So fast forward to 2019 uh, and the national elections that happened then, the Rajapaksa family who had governed Sri Lanka for many years, including at the end of the civil war, uh, but were in the opposition at this point, ran on a platform to come back to power and among other things, cut taxes. So slash VAT quite considerably from around 15 to 18%, for example. So um, sure enough, they did this when they came to power in late 2019. And this in itself led to quite a significant drop in tax revenues. And then of course, you know, months later, COVID hit, tourism collapsed, uh, remittances dropped, and so on. So all the while, um, ratings agencies were cutting Sri Lanka's credit rating further and further into junk, which meant that it was no longer able to refinance. And then, you know, its debt became a huge issue and the crisis that uh, we see now. So it wasn't, uh, 
as simple as COVID hitting, tourism falling. It was also driven by government policy around taxes to an extent. So now, you know, Sri Lanka's solvency is a growing concern and getting more attention, as you say. Now, it, 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 it repaid in January a $500 million bond, um, despite concern that it wouldn't be able to. But the big challenge is a $1 billion payment that's due in July. Um, and now that's, that's where it's far less clear what will happen then or what will happen before then. Um, so Sri Lanka's pretty, their official position is that they're determined that they will be able to repay without any issues, without any restructuring, IMF. Um, but uh, many investors now see that as the most, or one of those as the most likely scenario. This is a fascinating scenario from one perspective, and yet from another one, a very familiar scenario. So the familiar scenario that we talk to our students about is that at least in the modern sovereign debt experience, so then I'm talking about since roughly 1990, again and again, we see governments doing everything they can to avoid defaulting uh, and to avoid uh, restructuring since that is seen as a form of default even when they're not officially defaulting. And this logic seems to be that politicians do not want to be the ones in office having to oversee negotiations with creditors, bringing in the IMF, uh, all of the approbation that comes with being the ones who have to tell the world we cannot pay our debts. Now, th this is at odds with the traditional economic theory that is uh, grounded in moral hazard concepts, which says that governments will uh, rush to default uh, whenever they can. So is this sort of the narrative uh, with Sri Lanka as to why they seem to be so reluctant to bring in the IMF, uh, begin serious talks with their creditors. Best I can tell, they don't really even have lawyers and bankers hired to do the restructuring, even though they, they literally seem to be out of foreign currency reserves at, the, at this stage. Is, is, it the, is it the standard story of the politicians just willing to keep paying the money in order to avoid the penalty that will likely come from overseeing a restructuring? I think to an extent, yes, because the Rajapaks, as I mentioned, are a very powerful political dynasty who ended the civil war, like I said, that went on for you know more than 25 years. So, um, you know, and, and, and the president at the moment is Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Um, the prime minister is Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was formerly the president. So, um, you know, the family is still very much um, uh, kind of central to, to the government. And for them, one can imagine that, as you said, for all the reasons you described, defaulting or, you know, restructuring, um, 
particularly when Sri Lanka is quite proud of its reputation as a you know reliable borrower, would be a, a, a bitter pill to swallow. Um, just may I, may I um, just interject a little bit? So one of the things about this that I may have gotten wrong, but when I talk to creditors or sell-side analysts who are watching Sri Lanka and who hold Sri Lankan paper and have experience in the sovereign debt markets, they all, I mean, maybe not all, but at least some of them take the perspective of, you know, you need to restructure, especially if they hold longer dated paper. They think if they think it's better for the country to restructure in terms of increasing the value of their holdings, then they want the country to restructure. So uh, the, the narrative of the country saying, no, we, we want to keep our creditors happy, we want to maintain our credit, it seems a bit at odds with the creditor saying, you know, maybe this is time to bring in the IMF and seriously think about a restructuring. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting dilemma, and I mean, the the bonds are trading at um, I can't remember the exact figure, but fifty cents on the dollar or something, right? So that seems to be very much the expectation that they will um, have to restructure. Um, I think there is a it's a it's a live debate within the government, as best as I can tell. So, and I think opinion is perhaps shifting on some level. So, on the one hand, you have a figure such as the central bank governor, Ajit uh, Nivad Cabral, who is adamant that the country will make it through without issues. Um, and so their strategy for this includes a recovery in tourism, uh, which will bring more dollars into the country. It includes various measures they've implemented, such as import controls on vehicles, for example, which are designed to, to preserve foreign currency. Um, and they're also talking to uh, bilateral creditors such as India, its neighbor, which has been providing um, all sorts, I mean, hundreds of millions worth, more than a billion, I believe, of dollars worth of assistance in form of credit lines for um, essential goods, food, fuel, etc. So they are adamant that there's no restructuring necessary at all. However, I think there is a contingent within the government, and this is me speaking from the outside, obviously, but um, that is more open to a restructuring or going to the IMF or whatever it may be. Um, one of whom is Basil Rajapaksa, who is the finance minister, the brother of Gotabaya, and you know a very, very powerful figure politically in his own right, who appears to be you know giving a more kind of, for want of a better term, kind of pragmatic version of events. Um, you know, we, when we interviewed him last month, he said that they were, quote unquote, trying all options, uh, negotiating with everyone um, in order to try and make it through the crisis. So I don't think it's clear whether Sri Lankan authorities have made up their minds. And I don't think it's clear, uh, you know, who's in the sort of ascendance, as it were, internally. But uh, there, there's a real debate. Uh, that's in, you know, spilling out into the public domain. So maybe this is a good time to, to talk about some of the broader context. You mentioned the, the swap lines, at least that's, that's uh, what I think they are. Um, 
that India has extended. There's, of course, a significant debt owed to Chinese lenders, I assume, although I don't know that means you know, China Development Bank and China Exim Bank and others. Can can we get a little background about the that broader context of bilateral debt, maybe starting with China? Sri Lanka has a number of large bilateral creditors, Japan, India, and indeed China. So China gets the most attention, rightly or wrongly, right? Um, uh, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, outside of Sri Lanka and within Sri Lanka about whether uh, the country has been caught in a sort of, you know, quote unquote, debt trap. But it is important to keep perspective and um, bear in mind that China isn't Sri Lanka's largest creditor. International bondholders account for a much larger share, 30, about 33% of third. China, you know, the official figure is debated, but it's about 10%, and it's roughly kind of the same as Japan. But, you know, the issue, I think, is that it's grown quite fast. And, you know, the rates are sort of relatively high compared to some of the others. Um, and of course, um, there's also, there's a huge debate around, as is happening around the world, about how this Chinese borrowing has been used. Um, so the, the argument is that it's been used for sort of white elephant style infrastructure projects that aren't really uh, needed and have relatively little return. Um, the most notorious example being the Ham Bantota port um, in southern, southern Sri Lanka, which you know ultimately was leased back to the Chinese on a 99-year lease. So um, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the president, asked the Chinese foreign minister um, recently, a few weeks ago, on a visit to restructure their debt with Sri Lanka, and we'll see whether they agree to that. Now, um, this, you know, play, particularly when it comes to India, this plays into sort of broader geopolitical um, jockeying or machinations around Sri Lanka. It's an island nation, um, you know, uh, in, in the Indian Ocean, off the southern tip of India, that is very close to some of the busiest shipping channels in the world. Um, and India and China are, you know, long decades old rivals, right? Um, and you know, just uh, just two years ago, less than two years ago, they were there were actually violent clashes on the Himalayan border. So, you know, both countries have uh, interests in Sri Lanka. India views. Sri Lanka as its kind of historical backyard uh, to an extent and has in this crisis really made it a point of trying to be proactive through these these lines we mentioned um and it you know China has made inroads in recent years it also has historic links um but but yeah it's it's a sort of it, this debt crisis is becoming an arena for that kind of geopolitical competition so i think this is a good time to go to the break and but after the break i'm hoping we can start by just get, getting a few details about the india china global competition where the us falls into all of this where the imf uh, falls in and um what ben thinks looks like is going to happen in the near future but Right now, let's take a break. 
so Ben, if we may continue from where we stopped off, I was wondering if you could give us a little sense of what's happening on the ground. So there, there are two aspects of this that I'm particularly curious about, uh, some of it building on uh, reading your superb articles in the FT. And the two aspects are, one, uh, how much pain is being felt by the Sri Lankan people by the refusal to do the restructuring and instead pay these debts in full? And two, is the IMF on the ground? So uh, the finance minister seems to have said they're starting uh, negotiations with private creditors, but our experience in sovereign debt restructurings is that private creditors aren't coming to talk to you unless the IMF has done a detailed analysis and then put forward prescriptions about how much austerity you need, how much debt relief will get you back to sustainability. And then once you have that, that's when negotiations meaningfully arise. Uh, now, of course, Sri Lanka might have you know, a special plan. Uh, I remember reading quotes about, you know, how they have hundreds of economists in their central bank working away on uh, their own uh, homegrown plans. I, I confess that all of this seems a bit dubious to me, uh, but I'm just wondering what's going on the, on, on the ground and particularly the, the pain that's being suffered because we're talking about political decisions and at some point, people don't want to suffer more pain, and rightfully so. Yeah, starting with you know what, what's being felt um, by Sri Lankans, it is a very real and palpable crisis. So inflation is in double digits. Uh, food inflation in particular is um, over 20%, I believe. So, you know, Sri Lanka is dependent on imports. So that means it's it's importing a lot of things, including some vital foodstuffs like, you know, one key example is milk powder, which is, you know, very widely consumed rather than liquid milk. Um, that's in short supply because like all sorts of other goods, the shipments that carry it are getting stuck at the ports in Colombo and elsewhere because suppliers haven't been paid uh, in dollars because there's a shortage of foreign currency, importers can't get dollars from the bank and so on. Um, so this is, and you know, I saw some of this, there are people queuing up outside shops for their milk powder, for their uh, cooking gas and so on. The one man I spoke to said, you know, he'd been looking for days to find somewhere that had cooking gas. And there was this place that just got their shipment in. And so he was one of maybe, I don't know, a dozen people waiting outside there. Um, there are power outages because there isn't enough fuel to keep power stations running. So it's very real um, and painful. It's interesting to compare with other countries in South Asia, like India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and so on, because on a per capita income level, Sri Lanka is, is much higher and there's a better social safety net. Um, but you know, once you get into rural areas and, and poorer parts of the country, um, you know, that uh, becomes more precarious and 
you know, one of the sociologists I spoke to who works in the North, um, which was where the war, you know, took place, um, was talking about how people are, you know, increasingly struggling to, to get enough to kind of feed themselves, basically, uh, you know, more than a couple of one or two meals a day. So in terms of what's happening with the IMF, um, I think it's still unclear, frankly, you know, the government's official position has been uh, until fairly recently that there's no need for the IMF, um, despite the fact that Sri Lanka has actually gone to the IMF about, you know, 16 odd times uh, in its history. But as I, as I mentioned, Basil Rajapaksa, the finance minister, did have a more kind of open sounding message. And he recently told um, some journalists that they'd written to the IMF. Um, you know, to get some uh, some advice or something like that, if I'm uh, not mistaken. And the central bank governor, who I also mentioned, who's been sort of more kind of, I don't know what the term is, but more sort of um, anti-IMF to an extent in his messaging, um, you know, said this was a, dismissed this as a sort of routine technical program and nothing to do with, uh, with a restructuring or a program like that. Um, so I think it's unclear. I mean, one question I'd have for you is whether there could be, you know, in between the sort of formal, full-blown creditor talks, whether there could be some kind of informal, more informal forum or like an early, very early stage um, process where, you know, the officials talk to talk to creditors and kind of discuss what they might respectively be open to, for example. I mean, I think this is the, this is one of the more, sort of interesting aspects of the situation from my perspective. I mean, and me too, maybe you have a, a different attitude. I just, I find it very hard to see what those conversations would look like when, as far as I know, there's no meaningful IMF engagement with the country. And when, if you're, if I'm a commercial creditor, if we take uh, Zambia as a, a rough parallel since uh, there's a combination of, of commercial creditors and debt uh, owed to Chinese lenders. The commercial creditors have not been interested in making concessions, and, and maybe they're using the, the sort of this idea of equity with Chinese lenders as a smokescreen. But there's, you know, there's, there's no clear sense here of how deep the haircuts would need to be. Uh, how the respective creditors are going to be are going to be treated in in any kind of restructuring. So I don't know. I mean, me too. Maybe you have a different view. I just I don't see what that looks like without the, the some more concrete involvement by the fund. I I completely agree. My sense is that an IMF team would need three to four months to get in there and look at the books and the books are not open and clear. So China is, is the great example, but now clearly India is involved and whatever team that goes in is going to have to figure out what kind of subsidies, government subsidies need to be removed, what kind of sectors need to be given more investment, whether or not it's really plausible that tourism, that has suffered a lot uh, can really been 
be built back up in order to generate foreign currency, enough foreign currency so that Sri Lanka can go back to the market. This is going to take a matter of months and July is coming really close and the IMF team is not going to want the money to be to whatever foreign currency Sri Lanka has to rush out in July. So they, they're not putting sort of sophisticated boots on the ground to do this analysis now. They are making it increasingly difficult for it to be plausible that they can do anything by July. It just, they, 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 this informal discussion strikes me as just bullshit. It, it's, they don't need discussions. Uh, there can't be discussions unless you have detailed technical analysis. And that's what the IMF does. They, that's what they're good at. They're not negotiating. They're doing the analysis. So, I mean, I am from that part of the world and I care a lot about it. And um, I am skeptical about the degree of assistance that India can provide. Uh, and even if India had the resources to provide it, uh, Indian assistance is going to come with uh, strings, strings that the Rajapaksha government is not going to want since they will undoubtedly uh, involve uh, the Tamil problem. And so this is all looking like uh, a very fast moving truck headed to a heavy concrete wall, but I, I just, it, 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 it is not, none of these stories uh, are sounding plausible to me. Sorry for being so cynical that this somehow can recover. No, it's, um, it's interesting to hear your um, perspective. And um, I mean, not to bore you all with numbers, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the, the official foreign reserves are currently $2.4 billion, more or less. But a lot of that comes from a yuan currency swap with China um, that at the end of the last year, when it was done, was about $1.5 billion. And um, you, you may know more about this, uh, but, you know, the analysts I've spoken to don't believe that that can be converted and used to pay dollar dominated debt. So, you know, according to uh, Murtaza Jafaji, who's the chairman of the Advocata Institute think tank in Colombo, the usual reserves are currently at about $800 million. And it has commitments of uh, nearly 2 billion in February and March. Um, you know, some other analysts have similar kind of um, have made done similar studies and and you know expect that reserves could very well run out at some point this year. Um, so yeah, this this one billion payment in July is looking kind of more and more urgent. So Another I guess aspect of this uh, that is interesting to consider is the balance between the cost of restructuring, meaning the reputational cost of restructuring, and the benefit that countries get from doing early restructuring. So for example, uh, Uruguay in 2003 uh, was hit hard by the Argentine uh, debt default at the end of 2001. 
And so they did an early restructuring. Uh, it, the problem was caused largely by uh, the Argentine economy. And they decided we're not gonna wait and we're gonna restructure early. I think it was literally a matter of months before Uruguay was able to go back to the markets, borrow again, and their economy was doing well. Uh, and we have other experiences of countries being sensible. I worry that, that Sri Lanka is taking the opposite route uh, of denying, 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 and then there won't be enough time to plan the restructuring. These things take time. Documents have to be read, uh, the sort of terms have to be uh, figured out with a large number of dispersed international creditors. The China equation has to be dealt with and China is typically not forthcoming about it, all of its lendings and then private creditors, as Mark said, are going to be unhappy about not knowing about Chinese lendings. I mean, four months strikes me as the bare minimum. And the, the, there's just, I, I worry there's, there's not enough time. Uh, but Mark, I, I interrupted you as you were going to ask a question and I, I haven't asked a question. I've just uh, babbled on about uh, my blood pressure for, for this situation? I was, uh, in fact, probably going to not ask a question myself, but to just observe that it's kind of ironic since in some ways Sri Lanka is well prepared to do a consensual, reasonably straightforward restructuring, at least of its bond debt, the, rather than a bunch of bond series that vote individually, most of the debt stock has these aggregated collective action clauses that should, should, if they work well, allow in principle for a somewhat easier restructuring. I, I guess, um, so I find it all very, very perplexing. And I, I wonder, though, by way, of, by way of actually asking a question, Ben, can we, I, one of the things that has interested me is that we are increasingly seeing environmental objectives tied to the debt restructuring process. So we saw that in Belize with the debt for nature swap. And, and I think uh, both Mitu and I, uh, maybe especially me, have some cynicism uh, about those kinds of transactions. Not that they don't accomplish good things, but some skepticism about whether they are really um, all that they're touted to be. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the prospects in Sri Lanka for tying a restructuring to the extent we get to that point, uh, as, I, as I think it seems likely uh, we will, uh, tying a restructuring to some kind of environmental investments in improving the, the country's coasts or stopping deforestation, what opportunities are there for this type of linkage between environmental and climate objectives and debt relief? An excellent question. I wish uh, there was someone else <laughs> more qualified to, to talk about it. I, it's not something I'm, um, I've heard of in this context, um, uh, but I imagine there could be decent um, opportunities, uh, you know, considering as Sri Lanka is a big tourist destination, 
its environment is you know part of its uh, you know core part of its economic appeal in that sense and you know it very much sees tourism as its as its solution um for the future um so it'd be an interesting one to watch uh, if those kinds of conversations start to become more prominent well ben thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us our students are going to be working on designing plans for a Sri Lankan restructuring, not that anybody necessarily will pay attention to our plans, uh, but at least we will begin designing those plans. So this conversation has been incredibly illuminating for us, and we're hopeful that we will get to have you back on the podcast uh, multiple times. Thank you both um, for, for having me. It's been really interesting and to, to hear your points of view. And I'm glad to be able to uh, share whatever I can with your students and other listeners. Mm-hmm.